Um, and I'm okay with that because here's what I, I, I would want to say. I, I really believe baptisms preach. And so um, what I want to do is, and I have a nine-page sermon, which is usually about 50 minutes, so, and I have about 15. So let's, do, let's, let's uh, do a little practice in summing up. What I want to talk to you this morning is about is re-embracing and refocusing on the disciple-making mandate we have received as the church and as believers in Jesus in a society in which that mandate is disapproved of, disliked, and even slandered, and remind us that we are going to need to have a lot of endurance and be a certain kind of believer if we're going to make it through the context we're going to live in, okay? Now, most people are familiar with this passage from Matthew, which is sometimes called the Great Commission, which is the very end of the book. And Jesus said, when they saw him, Jesus, they worshiped him, but some doubted. Then Jesus came and said, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always, even to the very end of the age. Okay? That's pretty explicit. And so he basically is telling the church of Jesus Christ, those who believe in him, that from the, the time when he ascends, which is minutes after this, until the time when he returns, the main explicit task he has given us is to make disciples of all nations. And just in case we're hazy on what that means, it explicitly means we're to go and tell, go, right, and make disciples of all nations. It means that we are to invite people to actually decide to believe in Jesus and to signify their acceptance with public baptism in the Trinitarian God and that we're not supposed to stop there. We're not supposed to go and make believers or confessors. We're supposed to make disciples, meaning we're supposed to teach them to obey everything Jesus commanded. And then he made sure that you didn't have any outs. He goes after the internal psychological out and the external authoritarian out. The internal one is, but I am too weak to accomplish this. And so Matthew makes very clear that when Jesus gives this command, he doesn't only give it to absolute heart-given-over worshipers, right? It says that what after that? But some doubted, right? But he speaks to the same people, gives them all the same mandate. So you might say, well, I'm not particularly strong. It's okay. But Jesus gave this same mandate to those who worshiped his resurrected self, who were in great spiritual—and there were some there that doubted, and he gave the same mandate to all of them. So we're just going to have to do something with that. But what we're going to do is not chuck the mandate. And then the second is the external one. What happens when people tell us we should live up to this mandate? That we should get some other mandate? And so Jesus addresses that when he says, listen, actually, I've got all the authority, okay? All the authority in heaven and earth and everything, everywhere, all the time is right here, Okay? And I'm telling you to do this. Okay, so there isn't anyone who actually has the authority to tell us to stop doing this. So today we have three things 
that we could refer to as part of this. We have the Dominican Republican. We have foreign missions. We have the taste of Madison. When the nations come to us and utilizing that, there are some places in the Old Testament where the plan was the people of God would be so beautiful that people would come from the nations to them. Now, I don't know if we've achieved any particular level of beauty, but at least because of the university, the nations are coming here and we ought to take advantage of it. Right? And then the baptisms point to two things because two of the people who are being baptized became believers as adults. They were outside the church and they believed and came in. And two of the people getting baptized this morning are children from Christian homes who were taught the faith growing up. And both are children, the biological discipleship growth of the church, and the outreaching discipleship growth are both equally valid. We have to do, we can't do one and not the other. We have to disciple our children well, and we have to reach out to people who are far from God in the culture around us. Now, one of the things that we're going to have to realize is that in our culture and in your lifetimes, in my lifetime, this is not going to be popular. Okay? We are going to be both, um, we are going to be considered deeply out of step with the culture around us. Deeply out of step with the culture around us. In fact, this mandate to make disciples of all nations is one of the, the two Christian mandates that we will receive the most flack for in our present culture. Perhaps the most on this one. It's considered arrogant, pejorative, too exclusive, and so on. But I, I, I want to just remind you that Christians have always... Always, 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 always been politically unfashionable and doctrinally misunderstood. Always, always have been politically unfashionable and doctrinally misunderstood. And the result of that, I have to skip some stuff. And the result of that is usually we get to experience being slandered and disliked by some percentage or swath of the external watching culture, and in Madison, I think that's going to be a higher percentage rather than a lower percentage. <laughs> but I want to say a couple things about this. You need to realize that I want to remind you that the early Christians, the Christians of the first centuries, were sincerely believed by the Roman public to cannibalize children. A large percentage of the Roman population really sincerely believed because Christians were being slandered or ignorantly, not necessarily maliciously slandered, just ignorantly slandered, that they ate children. It was also believed that they, um, that the only kind of intercourse that they engaged in was incestual because a Christian was only supposed to marry a brother or a sister, right? An actual letter written um, to one of the Roman rulers describing the Christians. This is, not, this is in the government now, okay? This is not some, you know, some little paper found in a trash heap somewhere of some crazy Uncle Bill, okay? This is, I mean, this was a letter written on the highest government level describing what this group of people were like. And now... As wickeder things advance more fruitfully and abandoned manners creep on day by day, those abominable shrines of an impious assembly are maturing themselves throughout the whole world. Assuredly, this confederacy ought to be rooted out and extricated. 
They know one another by secret marks and insignia, and they love one another almost before they know each other. Everywhere also there is mingled among them a certain religion of lust, and they call one another promiscuously brothers and sisters, and even that even a not unusual debauchery may, may by the intervention of the sacred name become incestuous. Right? So it's not only incestuous, but it's part of worship. It is thus that their vain and senseless superstition glories in crimes. Some say that they worship the genitals of their pontiffs and priests and adore the nature as if it were of their common parent. I know not whether these things are false. Certainly, suspicion is acceptable to secret and nocturnal rites. And he who explains their ceremonies by reference to a man punished by extreme suffering for his wickedness and to the deadly wood of the cross appropriates fitting altars for reprobate and wicked men that they may worship what they deserve. So you see what he's saying there? There's all these suspicions about this, but of course it makes sense. They worship a criminal who is crucified. Only criminals get crucified. And so their king is—so of course they engage in all kinds of debaucheries and incests, and, and then this is how the letter ends. Now, the story about the initiation of young novices is as much to be detested as it is well known. An infant covered over with meal that it may deceive the unwary is placed before him, meaning the new Christian. So this is the real—not baptism. This is the real initiation rite of the church. A, a baby is stolen, covered over with some kind of meal, and the, the person is asked to cut into it, right? The place before him who is, who is to be stained with the rites, this infant is slain by the young pupil who has been urged on as if to harmless blows on the surface of the meal with dark and secret wounds. Thirstily, O oh horror, they lick up its blood. Eagerly, they divide its limbs. By this victim, they are pledged together. With this consciousness of wickedness, they are covenanted to mutual silence. That was the description by the Roman government official of the rite of communion. They eat the flesh and blood of Jesus Christ, who is often depicted in art as a baby. Right? Now, on top of just slander and ignorance, there was also the fact that Christians were politically out of step. They were politically out of step. They did not believe throwing away children that you didn't want so that they would just die was okay. They were very much against that, and they were destroying the natural evolution of society by saving these children. So the ancient Greco-Roman societies believed essentially in the evolutionary principle that children you didn't want, if you had an excess of girls, right, because of wars, you've got too many girls, you've got to limit the number of girls, or there's any kind of defect at all, or the baby doesn't look promising, or has trouble nursing, or whatever, the best thing to do is just throw it away. It's one less mouth to feed. It's one less thing to worry about. And that's how societies grow strong. And the Christians were going to these piles where these children were being left and taking them in and raising them up as their own. And they were undermining the strengthening of society. And the Greco-Roman people were very upset about this. Um, they criticized them for that. For um, their, they, Christians were criticized for the undermining of slavery and of the place of women because women were elevated and everybody was treated equal at communion. Slaves came up with slave masters and ate the same bread, ate the same meal, were treated the same way. 
And there were all these things that the, the Romans knew that the, the Christians didn't openly, completely denounce slavery, but they knew that within the Christian system was the death blow of it. The minute slaves were men just like their masters, the minute they could come to the same right and were the same son of God just like their master, there was a problem. There's a problem. It's exactly the reason why some of the Southern Christians didn't want George Whitfield to preach to slaves in the American slavery, because he always would tell them they had souls that could be saved. Now, lest you lest you think wrongly that this is just was just back then. Perhaps the morally purest Christian that we could look to in most of the history of the Christian church would be William Wilberforce, okay? Right? His lifelong mission, what he's completely known for, is the abolition of the slave trade. Not slavery completely, but the slave trade and then slavery in England, okay? And he spent his—in fact, his name at certain points was known throughout England as morally—as synonymous with moral purity. He was an amazingly pure and noble guy. But listen, that doesn't mean you're not going to get slandered. <laughs> it just doesn't mean that. There was a guy named William Corbett um, who was also, uh, he was a pamphleteer and a writer and owned a newspaper, and he saw a weakness in Wilberforce's armor. Wilberforce was making progress on getting more and more people. See, he had been defeated over and over again in Parliament, but what Wilberforce decided was he, he changed his approach halfway through and he said, actually, what I need to do, I need to convince the public. Because the, the inroads of the money from the slave trade are too much for me to overcome parliament. It's too ingrown. There's too much dirty money. The only way I can turn this around is if the British public knows what the transatlantic middle passage is like. Because they don't see the slaves going from Africa to the West Indies. All they see is the rum and sugar coming back. They don't even really know. So what happened is through the period of about 15 years, they wrote pamphlets. They wrote biographies of slaves that had been freed. They brought emancipated slaves to England had them speak all over the place. So people began to realize what their rum, what their sugar, what these things cost in human flesh. And Corbett, the press, he had 1,300 slaves. And he saw a chink in Wilberforce's armor, and he went after it with great eloquence and intelligence. And this is what he says. He stood up, and he spoke publicly against Wilberforce. He says, you seem to have a great affection for the fat and lazy and laughing and singing and dancing Negroes. But never have you done one single act in favor of the laborers of this country. You make your appeal in Piccadilly, London, among those who are wallowing in luxuries, proceeding from the labors of the people. You should have gone to the gravel pits and made your appeal to the wretched creatures with bits of sacks around their shoulders and with hay bands around their legs. You should have gone to the roadside and made your appeal to the emaciated, half-dead things who are there. Cracking stones to make the roads as level as a die for the tax eaters to ride on. What an insult it is. What an unfeeling, what a cold-blooded hypocrite must he be that can send it forth. What an insult to call upon people under the name of the free British laborers to appeal to them in behalf of black slaves. When these free British laborers, these poor, mocked, degraded wretches, would be happy to lick the dishes and bowls on which the black slaves have breakfasted, dined, and supped. Now that was a lie. And Cobit knew it was a lie. 
There is a long, long list of work Wilberforce did for the, quote, wage slaves in industrial England. But you know, when slander comes, it doesn't really matter if it's true or not. You make it sound good, talk with some moral authority, ruin a man's life, can't you? And friends, we need to understand that Jesus, as sure as he promised heaven, as sure as he promised justification, he promised us this. John 5, 20. Remember the words I spoke to you. No servant is greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. Matthew 10, 25. It It is enough for the student to be like his teacher. And the servant like his master. If the head of the house has been called Beelzebub, the devil, how much more the members of his household? Right? So what kind of Christians are we going to need to be? Okay? Can't be fair weather. I think Jesus is sweet. You know, if I have some kind of little problem, Jesus will help me. I don't really care to read my Bible or know the inner workings of theology or have the inner motivations that come from really believing in Christ and knowing him and following him and serving him that comes from time and the fullness of the Spirit. No, you are going to have to be that person. Veneer Christianity is not going to work even for you. I mean, the whole idea that we'll stay faithful, but we might not be real effective. No, it's not even for us, okay? We cannot be this particle board, veneered Christian. We're going to have to be oak. We're going to have to be spinal Christians. We're going to have to have a theological backbone in our spiritual lives. Now, that's as opposed to two things. The first is, we can be crabs. That is, we use our theology as weapons to fight defensively against other people, and we use our Christianity to be mean, okay? This is often associated with fundamentalism, but lots of people do it in lots of different ways with lots of different ideologies, don't they? And so your ideology, you wear it on the outside, and it's your armor, and you fight. Now, listen, being hard sometimes can be helpful. But it is not what we are called to be. Now, the other thing is, we also can't just get rid of the skeleton altogether, can we? Because the problem with not having a skeleton is we're not really good for that much. Most of the stuff that doesn't have skeletons are things like squids and cuttlefish, and those little guys running all over the ocean just trying desperately not to get eaten. And it's not much help. If there's no spine to our doctrine, we don't have any good news. So if somebody comes to us and they're like, well, what do you really think about this? Okay, so you don't have any bad news to tell them because you don't have any moral principles, but you don't have any good news to tell them either. Right? And so we really need to be more like a human. There's, there's no gear. Um, we need to be more like a human, right? We've got the skeleton on the inside. It's there. It gives the form. It gives the strength. It won't get pushed over. It's strong. But on the outside, we have the flesh and muscles of the action of love that we're trying to express to people. So the doctrine gives us form, but we don't use it to be as annoying and mean as possible. Which is just evidence that we don't really believe it that well, if we're like that. Okay, I just, have, I, have, I just need to keep moving here um, and, and finish. The second is we need to be coronary Christians as opposed to adrenaline Christians. And I'm just going to read a couple paragraphs from John Piper on this, okay? I pleaded with people he was preaching to about this to be coronary Christians, not adrenaline Christians. Not that adrenaline is bad, I said. I, it gets me through a lot of Sundays. 
but it lets you down on Mondays. The heart is another kind of friend. It just keeps on serving very quietly through good days and bad days, happy and sad, high and low, appreciated and unappreciated. It never says, I don't like your attitude, I'm taking the day off. It just keeps on humbly lub-dubbing along. It endures the way adrenaline doesn't. Coronary Christians are like the heart are the are like the heart in the causes they serve. Adrenaline Christians are like adrenaline, a spurt of energy and then fatigue. When we what we need in the cause of social justice, for example, against racism and abortion, the cause of world mission to plant churches among the unreached peoples of the world, and the cause of personal holiness and evangelism to lead people to Christ and to love them no matter what, is not spurts of energy, but people who will endure for the long haul. Okay? America and the American evangelical church, because of the introduction of pop psychology, theology, consumer-based worship services, and all this sort of thing, has aided the culture in making consumers out of us, okay? And so on the front end, it was cool for getting people to church and raising budgets and buildings and so on. But on the back end, the unintended consequences is we just run on adrenaline and emotion, whatever, and there's no ballast to the guiding forces of our life. We don't have any discipline to actually pull the trigger on anything in our character. And it's one of the reasons we are emotionally suffering so much and damaging ourselves and other people so much and then running out to all kinds of sins and consumptions to make ourselves feel better. And it's one of the reasons why theologically we are so quick to back down when anybody intellectually intimidates us at all. And so we have to be Christians who think in the terms of the believing of our faith and the building of our faith and the doctrines of our faith, similar to what Wilberforce said some years later. He says, I have daily become more sensible that my work— or my life or my faith must be affected by constant and regular exertions rather than by sudden and violent ones. An example of this would be, I feel bad today, so today I'll go to church. Right? I'm, I'm having a family crisis right now, so now I'll go and read the Bible and be with other Christians. Spurts don't work. They don't work. And you might feel a little better because adrenaline is a real thing. But you won't live. You won't have the beating heart of the strength of faith within you. And if we are going to live, listen, if we're going to live and we're going to, see, we can't just go, oh, I'm in a minority culture and I'm out of step politically and people don't understand me and, it's, and have little messiah complexes and feel bad and be self-righteous with God because we suffer so much for him. We suffer so much for you. Um, that's not going to work, right? We have to accept the fact we're going to be in an uh, intellectual minority culture. We're going to be persecuted, sometimes slandered. You may not get a promotion. You may not get a job. You may be looked at in your office with suspicion your entire career. All these things may happen to you. And listen, and you have to be happy about it. You have to be full of joy, glad. Amen. Not feeling like there's some kind of, like you have some kind of rights now because you suffered. You need to speak like Paul when he got whipped half to death. Light and momentary afflictions not worth comparing to the glory that awaits me and to the sufferings of my Savior. And I'm so privileged, so privileged to in some way parallel his life in a tiny little bit of suffering. It's even the slightest bit like him and appointed by him. It is such a privilege 
to be looked askance at, to be, for me, the student, to be treated like the teacher, for me, the servant, to be treated like the master. It's such a, this is great! Right? We're going to have to be spinal Christians. We are going to have to be coronary Christians. We are going to have to give ourselves to things like knowing our Bibles and knowing doctrine and understanding the gospel and being with the family of God and talking through the issues and understanding how to deal with objections and learning emotionally how to deal with people's disdain of you. You know, for some of us, we just don't like being disliked. That could ruin your faith. Right? We are going to have to be these kind of Christians so that we can be the kind of people who can live out the mandate in a beautiful way. And so we can have baptism services all the stinking time. So let's pray and have some testimonies. Father, we pray that you would build in this church a body of coronary spinal Christians. We don't want to be crabs to the culture. We don't just want to be mean and tell everybody how they're wrong and be like, "Ah, I'm a Christian and you don't like me, but I don't like you back. We want to be people who love, love the people who dislike us, even the people who would persecute us in the ways that we get persecuted, which is not really that bad, comparatively speaking. And we pray, Father, that you would make us a church that lives joyfully and beautifully and we don't get the sense of entitlement that we're living, that we're doing so much for you because some people don't like exactly what you've told us to do. And help us as a church to stay committed and grounded in this, our great mandate, to make disciples of all nations, to baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and to teach them to obey everything that Jesus has commanded us. Amen. Am I doing this part? So, Ken, Ken, Ed, Ken Edge is our first baptism, and he'll be, all of the baptism folks, the four of them are going to read a, short, a testimony before uh, we do the dunking. Go for it. Get this out of your way. Hi there. Um, this is Kenny's story. Uh, back in 1958, I was born on a very cold day in January. I was born about a month premature. My dad said I fit in the palm of his hand. As you can see, I made up for that time. <laughs> Growing up, I went to church with my grandma at Bashford Methodist Church over on the north side. Um, after she died, I stopped going. When I was about 11, I made national news. Um, I was snowmobiling on a lake and an airplane decided to land in front of me. I couldn't afford to miss it. I hit the plane, crashed into it. A good thing I was wearing my helmet uh, because there was a hole in the side of it about the size of my finger. Um, I got into go-kart racing, snowmobile racing, open-wheel racing. That's the midgets out in some prairie. Um, I shared my um, crashes and nothing too serious. Um, after this, I had three kids. I decided my time would be better spent raising my kids. I was a semi-truck driver, so I was gone all week and home on the weekends, which I spent with my family. I've been a semi-truck driver for over 30 years. I've logged over 3 million miles. About 10 years ago, um, I was driving my semi in Missouri about 3 a.m. 
there was a car full of teenagers that decided to stop in front of me. I did everything I could to swerve and miss them. My tractor began to jackknife. I lost control. Um, the tractor started rolling over. Um, the driver's seat broke. I had my seatbelt on by chance. Uh, the driver's seat broke and I became, I went out the back into the sleeper part. It started rolling over and over again. Um, it was like being in a dryer, if you can imagine being rolling over. Um, I saw a Phillips screwdriver coming towards my head. I prayed for God, please let me see tomorrow. I passed out. Um, and then all of a sudden I heard a voice, I will let you see tomorrow. I woke up on the highway. I heard some state troopers talking. Have you checked on the driver yet? No. Um, no. Um, then I sat up. The, the car behind me saw me fly out of the truck um, like a rag doll. Um, and then when I heard the officers talking about um, me not being there, or they thought I was dead, I stood up and I started walking around. After the accident, I tried talking to my family, getting them to go to church. They weren't interested. Um, I tried going to churches at truck stops across the country. About two years ago, I was in a car accident. I'm not exactly sure what happened since there was a dead deer on the side of the road. I assume that the driver swerved to miss the deer. I hit a huge rock. I was thrown from the car, landed in a cornfield. Um, I, I was yeah, like a stone from the car landing in the cornfield. The police officer showed up. He said I was dead. Um, he had to do CPR. I don't remember the accident. Um, I, I don't remember anything from noon that day until a month later. Um, the accident happened at 7.30 at night. But when I woke up from the hospital, when I woke up from the hospital, I don't remember much pain. That was probably God's grace. He was out for, I was out for so long and then to endure the pain. I did have 12 busted ribs on my right side, so I was pretty messed up. At least that's what the doctor said. He said, boy, you were really messed up inside. So I guess you can say that I've seen the light literally and saved me numerous of times. Not sure for what, but I'm here. He'll let me know. Thanks, Ken. Ken has received a lot of grace. Amen. Yeah, right? Whew. Next is Jarena. I'm looking up your last name, Everson. And um, I won't steal her thunder. Okay, so um, when I was really little, I decided I wanted to follow Christ. Um, I never really understood fully what that commitment meant, except for I knew that I was a sinner and Jesus died on the cross for me. Um, and so I didn't understand what it meant to fully give my life over to Christ until we went to Ethiopia. 
Um, I saw people who had left their homes to do work for Christ and were risking their lives to do work for Christ and doing what Jesus commands us to do in Matthew 28, 19 through 20, making disciples of all nations and telling them what he has done for us. And that's when I realized what the commitment I had made meant. And that's when I decided I wanted to follow him completely with my life. I think Jarena is going to be teaching the pastoral staff an economy of words seminar after the service. <laughs> Lydia, why don't you come? Lydia Monson is. Yeah. Okay. I was born in a Christian home. My parents are raising me to be a godly girl and to be obedient to Jesus. I accepted Jesus into my life when I was seven years old, and my parents still help me to learn more and more about Jesus every day. I really want to be like Jesus, but I stumble. Nobody's perfect, but God will help me not to stumble. With the help of God, I can do a lot of things. My faith grows when I read my Bible, go to church, pray, and go into Bible study. I want to tell you why I want to be baptized. The answer is in Acts 2.38. Peter replied, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. I hope that I will be able to shine the light of Jesus through my life so that others might want to know him too. Kaya Murphy. Good morning. I'm here, uh, repentant of my sins, in full submission of Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. Um, I admit to holding anger against Jesus um, through my life, blaming. Um, the things that I learned that were done, that were evil, that were done in his name, like enslaving indigenous people, I admit that I, I blamed Jesus for that, and that cut me off from him. And then about 10 years ago, okay, well, it was December of 1998, I was praying because it was really actually kind of hurting me, this anger that I had. And I was praying to try to let it go, and it came to me that Blaming Jesus Christ for the evil that has been done in his name is like blaming Gandhi for nuclear testing in India. And when, I, when that came to me, I just felt so released from that anger and that I'd held against God and Jesus Christ and really grateful um, for that. And uh, I continue to be very grateful and uh, pray that I will... Um, learn more, more humility as I, as I continue and, and through this baptism. Thank you. Thanks, Sarah. 